take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. As we come to hear the, the, the Word of the Lord preached, we want to read John chapter 13. And we're going to read verses 1 through 17 and then bounce down uh, to verse 33 and read through verse 38. So John chapter 13, and we'll begin reading at verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I have told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, Why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
Let's hear God's word preached. Well, a question, a question. What is the greatest and surest mark of a real Christian? Real disciples, genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Well, according to Jesus, it's, it's love, isn't it? That they love one another as I have loved them. And it's by this love that all people will know that they are my disciples. We're studying together four graces of the Christian life. And we've come to love. Love the great giver. Love, by definition, is, a, is an impulse to, to give, to, to diffuse, to share with others. It's love's delight to enrich others. It's something we find in God himself and in his people. We find it in Christ and we find it in his disciples. Now, we've seen that this grace of love in a, in a Christian flows in two directions. It, it flows Godward. We love him because he first loved us. But it also flows manward uh, to our neighbors, our fellow man, whoever they may be, to our enemies, those who have mistreated us, and especially toward our brothers and sisters in the family of God. And that's become our focus last week and this morning again, our love for one another in the body of Christ. Now, John 13 takes us right into the upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Our Lord is down to the last evening with his 12 disciples before his crucifixion. And having spent three years with these men, he's now leaving them to return to his father. And so he's preparing them for what they are about to witness as they'll see him dying in weakness upon a cross and preparing them to carry on the work after he's gone. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was there that night, and he tells us firsthand what he saw. And so in chapters 13 through 17, John gives us Jesus' last words, spread over some five hours that evening. And over 30 times, we hear Jesus speak to them about love, love, the dominant note that he continues to pound. And if we read this whole section in one sitting, we can't miss that emphasis and importance on love. Jesus uh, makes that clear. We hear it first in chapter 13 and verses 34 and 35. It's like a thunderclap that demands our attention where Jesus speaks of his new command and the mark of his disciples. Now, we only have time this morning to treat his new command. Next week, Lord willing, we'll see the mark of his disciples. So, my dear children, I'm leaving you very soon, and I leave you with a new command. Verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, the command to love is not new at all. As far back as Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, God had revealed to his people 
that they are commanded to love their neighbor as love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's not new. It's according to Jesus the second greatest commandment and it's been there for a long time. But what is new is the pattern and example of love. You notice that as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So the Son of God, what has happened since Leviticus 19.18? The Son of God, the eternal Son of God has come and has loved them with the very love that the Father has for him. And he was just hours away from the greatest demonstration of that love as he would lay down his life for them. So God's love enfleshed in Jesus Christ made this old commandment new. It filled it with fresh meaning, fresh depth, fresh clarity. Never had love been so clearly seen. And this love of Jesus for his own becomes the the new standard of love. Not love your neighbor as you love yourself, but love one another as I have loved you. A new command. So, If I would know how to love you, I must know how he has loved me. So that's what we're looking at this morning. How has Christ loved us? Three distinctive marks of Christ's love for us. And just remember, as we're studying his love for us, we are also studying how our love must behave toward one another. As as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So first of the three, and perhaps there's no real order, uh, but this is the order we'll take them in. His love for us is undeserved love. Will anyone disagree with me on that point? Did he love you because you were so lovely and you deserved his love? You were so holy and worthy of it. No. No, his love for us is undeserved. It's gracious. It's free. We didn't earn it. Christ didn't wait to love us until we loved him, until we obeyed him, until we were worthy of it. If he had, he would have waited forever and never would have loved us. Rather, it was precisely while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us in love. It was while we were yet enemies and sinful rebellion and God-haters, while we were grossly unthankful to him for his many gifts to us in creation, his many blessings, while we were uh, turned with our backs toward him, that's when he loved us and gave himself for us. We deserved only wrath, and he gave us Love instead. Now that's just the heart of the gospel, isn't it? And to go wrong on the gospel is to go wrong on love. Indeed, most of our problems loving one another have their roots in gospel distortions, gospel forgetfulness, being underwhelmed with this love that Christ has for us and has experienced has expressed for us at Calvary. He loved me when I had no love for him. He loved me 
when I was sinning against him, full full throttle against him. It was undeserved love. And if only I could say that all my injuries of Christ were before I knew him in my B.C. life, before he saved me. But the truth is, I still sin against him. And he is still wounded in the house of his friends. Now, it's one thing to be wounded by your enemies. Oh, but it's another thing to be wounded by your friends. That's a greater pain. And yet, he still loves me, undeserving, ill-deserving as I am. Did you stop sinning altogether when you became a Christian? Is that it? You drew a line? No more am I going to sin against Jesus? Do you, do you never wound him still? So what, has he quit loving you? No, because his love doesn't depend upon our deserving it. It never did, it never will. That's the beauty of it. We've sinned against this love of his time without numbers. Though for good, though for good, we render ill, he accounts us brethren still. Loves us undeserving as we are. Now notice how John introduces this whole evening at the beginning of John chapter 13. You see it there. Uh, He's writing much later. He's looking back on this night in the upper room. And and this is how he's going to introduce these next five chapters. Uh, John 13, 1. It was just before Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the end. Or he, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Do you see how Jesus divides the disciples' experience Uh, Or how John, I should say, how John divides the the disciples' experience of Jesus into two time categories. There is the past three years, and there is the next 18 hours that is about to unfold. It's kind of like a scrapbook with part one and part two. So part one, as John reviews all the events of the past three years that they had with Jesus the one thing that stood out to John was that Jesus had loved them. You see it? Having loved his own who were in the world. Now, love is patient and love is kind. Love is long-suffering. And that's what Jesus was with them. Patient, kind, long-suffering. Some of you have gone camping for a week with a bunch of guys, or even less than a week. And you live in tight quarters without all the comforts of home. Uh, You you try to sleep on the ground so you're sleep-deprived and not in your best, and then it rains on you, and and you're splashing mud on each other and dragging mud into the tent. And after a week of it, you're glad to get home to your wives and to a warm shower and to real food. Well, under such challenging circumstances, it's easy to get under the skin of each other, isn't it? Uh, It's easy to get irritated and impatient with each other. Now, maybe uh, none of you men did that. You were able to keep a lid on it for a week. But you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Then, can you men imagine what it was like for Jesus 
to be traveling and camping with 12 men, not for a week, but for three years. That was Jesus and the 12. And with these men, with all their differences and foibles and sins, Peter's mouth, and James and John weren't called the sons of thunder for for no reason. Jesus endured their lightning storms. It wasn't always pretty. And, And we get glimpses and peeks into that in the Gospels, don't we? What Jesus had to put up with for those three years that he was with his own. Love is patient. Love suffers long. It is forbearing. It is forgiving. It overlooks offenses. And that was Jesus day in and day out for three years, camping. Their sins against him, their sins against one another. They're arguing with each other. Quick tongues, foolish words. Their repeated unbelief and lack of faith in Jesus. Their dullness and slowness to believe all that the scriptures had said. Their quickness to forget what Jesus had just taught them. Requiring him to teach them all over again. Their repeated misunderstandings of what he said due to their earthly preconceived ideas and cherished notions about the kingdom of God and the Messiah's mission and what it would be. Their stubborn pride and self-righteousness, their slowness to forgive, their prejudice and lack of love for the Samaritans and the Gentiles, their having no time for little children and their parents bringing them to Jesus. There would be more than enough in, in all of that to make the very best among us to grow weary loving. John, writing much later now, looks back over all this time, these three years that these men had with Jesus. And he just says, oh, how he loved us, having loved those his own who were in the world. Well, the second part of the scrapbook is John looking ahead to the next 18 hours to unfold. And what John says is, having loved them, he now loved them to the end or to the uttermost. He showed them the utmost of his love. In other words, his love didn't peter out at the end, but rather hit a new gear and and showed them the utmost of his love. Think of the injuries that Jesus would yet suffer from these men over the next 12 hours. Peter will more than once say, nope, not going to happen, Lord, never. Arguing with Jesus, telling Jesus how it will be. They would grieve him with the same stubborn pride and self-righteousness as they argue with each other on that last night about who of them was the greatest They will all make promises that they will then break within hours. They will all sleep when he most needs and wants their prayers and sympathy in his sorrow and deep distress that nearly killed him in Gethsemane. And he will say, stay here and watch and pray with me. And he will go on a little farther and he'll come back and he'll find them sleeping. Could you not watch and pray with me one hour? And he'll go off again and he'll come back and find them sleeping. And again and again, three times. They don't care enough about me to to pray with me, to, to, to stay with me in this my darkest hour yet. 
They'll all forsake him at his arrest. They'll all leave him all alone to face the worst. And Peter will go on to disown him and just to deny that he even knows him three times. Now, those are no small failures of love. And they're all packed together from Jesus' own disciples into this last 12 hours that is now to be unfolded. And John looks back at that and he says, Oh, how he loved us. Oh, but how he now showed us the full extent of his love. Not allowing any of those offenses of ours to him to in any way cool or chill his love to us, but rather going straight to the cross to be damned and die for us. That's what we saw. Just more, not less love. And then we think of the pitiful things that dry up our love for one another, brethren. An unkind word, an angry look, some unfair treatment, and our love for one another shrivels and chills into a cold civility and politeness, if not ripened into bitterness. Molehills, compared to what we each have done to our Savior thousands of times, yet he only doubles down on love for us. The more we wound him in the house of his friends, the more he pities and loves us. Thou hast the pure and perfect gentleness. Indeed, gentle and lowly of heart. And because his love doesn't depend upon our earning our good behavior, because it's free, it's gracious love for the undeserving. And that is the love that we're commanded now to give to one another, undeserved love. In fact, the more undeserved by the other, the more Christ-like your love is. So when a brother or sister in Christ mistreats you in some way, you are just then in the situation where you have the opportunity to, to obey Jesus' new command, to love one another as he has loved you. A love for the undeserving. Oh, but they said this. Oh, but they did that. And Jesus says, okay. All you've told me is that they don't deserve your love. What's that got to do with anything? The love I'm commanding you to show is the love I've showed you. I've commanded you to love undeserving them as I have loved undeserving you. Now get at it. Remember that in the next time you think you have reason for your love to cool toward a brother or sister. Could we bear from one another what he daily bears from us, yet our glorious friend and brother loves us, though we treat him thus? Well, Christ-like love doesn't feed off of the one that we're loving. My, my love for my brother is not to, to, doesn't draw strength from their treatment of me. No, it draws from the Lord Jesus and his love for me. Well, if Christ has loved us with an undeserving love, the, the unescapable conclusion is that nobody but nobody, and especially our brothers and sisters in the family of God, has to deserve love before they get it from us. It's undeserved love. 
Secondly, Christ has loved us with a costly love. A costly love. We sang it. I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. His love was costly love, wasn't it? Now, love's the great giver. But will you not agree that there is giving and then there is giving? That there is a giving that costs us nothing and then there is a giving that does cost us. A giving that doesn't hurt and a giving till we hurt. That was Christ's love. He gave and he gave until it hurt, until it cost. There was nothing cheap about his love you see, love gives to, to meet the needs of the loved one. That's what love is. It, it, it delights to meet the needs of its object. And our need was so great. And our sin had sunk us so low that if, if, if the Son of God was going to really love us and meet our deepest need, which is to be right with God, reconciled to God, well, then it would cost him dearly. No, it would cost him everything. And he was so loving toward us that he was willing to pay that price. We had a hell to pay for our sin debt against God. Infinite wrath forever. And Jesus says, I'll pay it. I'll pay it. And so in love, he became man for us. And in love, he became sin for us. And in love, he became accursed for us. That he might redeem us to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And he himself bore our sins in his body to the tree. And there on the cross, he was cursed and punished for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that that brought us peace with God was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. It was damnation, and he took it willingly. Jesus paid it all. And whenever the Bible talks about Christ redeeming love, it inevitably leads us to the cross, to the cross. Like Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He was the sacrifice on the altar of the middle cross at Calvary. That's what loving us cost him to save us, the hellish cross, where he was sacrificed in our place. We sang it recently, if not last week. This is the power of the cross. Son of God slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. Because there he became sin for us took the blame, bore the wrath. Yes, we're forgiven all. But at what a cost. God gave himself up for us in Jesus Christ. There was nothing more for him to give once he had given up himself as the sacrifice on the cross. Costly, self-sacrificing love. And now he says, as I have loved you, you must love one another. Paul Tripp looks at this love and he calls it cruciform love because 
Christ's love bears the imprint of the cross. You can't, you can't talk about Christ's love without getting to the cross. Cruciform love. And that's the kind of love that Jesus commands us to have toward our brother and sister. Love that's willing to, to be sacrificed. Love that's willing to die to self in order to enrich another. And it can pay that cost in different ways. Uh, Sacrificing some money, some time, some spiritual gifts, or, or even just some discomfort of what it is to go on loving someone who's misunderstanding and mis, uh, mistreating you. You, you know, there, there's a cost to pay for not getting even, isn't there? You, you know what I mean. There's nothing like sweet revenge. And somebody says something and, and just giving it right back. Oh, that's good. That feels good, doesn't it? But love will pay the cost to return evil with good. It costs something. It hurts uh, to not have the last word in a disagreement. To, To be ready to just walk away with a pleasant look without having had the last jab. To, to let their words be the last word to the discussion. That, that hurts. Love each other with costly love. Love that does hurt. Love that does cost you something. Now, when we turn to 1 John, and I want you to turn to chapter 3 of 1 John, uh, I want you to see, uh, notice something with me in the way the Apostle John handles this matter of loving one another as Christ has loved us. Uh, In these passages, uh, actually we're in chapter 3, verse 16 of 1 John, we're right in the midst of a section called loving one another. And what I want you to notice is that where John clearly speaks of Christ's own love for us, He no no sooner speaks of Christ's love for us than he turns around and says, now you love each other like he's loved you. It's almost like he can't talk about Jesus' love for us without remembering that upper night, uh, upper room evening with Jesus when he said, now now you all, as I have loved you, you must love one another. So so here we are, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. This is how we know what love is. We're we're talking about loving one another. What is that? What does it mean? How do we love one another? Well, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Not period, full stop, end of discussion. And we ought to lay down our lives for us. Do Do you hear the echo from the new command? Jesus laid down his life for us. That's how you're to love. You must love one another. And so we too must, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. So our love must be patterned after his love. Did Jesus lay down his life for us? Then we must lay down our lives for our brothers. Was his love costly? Well, then ours must not shrink from the cost either. Now, we, by laying down our lives, even if we could go to the nth degree of Giving up our physical life cannot redeem our brothers and sisters like Jesus' love did. But there is a way for us to lay down our lives for our brothers. And he shows us how we do that. Verse 17, the next verse. 
If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And the answer is, it can't. It can't be in him. Not at that moment, because God's love, by very definition, gives, shares, diffuses to others. Love takes delight in the relief of our brother in need. Oh, but that will require a costly sacrificial giving. And what verse 16 calls laying down our lives for our brothers, that's a sacrifice of our life. Verse 17 says God's love in us will pay the cost of material possessions to meet a brother's need. Do you see those two together? Can you, can you see how, how verse 17 is a fulfillment of verse 16? That, that verse 17 is how we lay down our lives for one another. Have you thought how your financial gifts really are laying down your lives for the person in need? Think of it this way. Let's assume you work 40 hours a week. What is your paycheck? Your paycheck represents your 40 hours of your life, right? That's what that paycheck is. It's just a representative thing that represents what? 40 years, not 40 years, 40, 40 hours of your life. Now, now, you only have so much of your life to live. And when you take some of that paycheck and give it to meet somebody else's life, others need, you've just given something of your life to them. An hour, two hours, three, four, five, 20 hours of your life. You've, you've just given it away. You've laid it down. You've sacrificed it. You've gone without that they might have. They might have their needs met. And it requires sacrifice, doesn't it? Sacrificing the pleasure, the enjoyment, legitimate pleasure enjoyment that you would have had from that portion of your earnings in order to enrich another. That's sacrifice. That's laying down your life for another, according to John 3, 16 and 17. And, of course, the same thing's true of any time that you invest in your brother or sister in dozens of different ways, from just drawing aside and praying for them for five minutes, in calling them, visiting them, helping them in some way. You are giving a portion of your life, laying it down, sacrificing for them. What John is after is a love that's more than talk. You see it in verse 18, what follows. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Talk is cheap. Be warmed and filled. Doesn't cost you anything to say that, just a breath. But actions are costly. In time, in money, a very part of your life is given. Lay down for another. Jesus didn't just love us in word from his Splendor in heaven. I love you guys down there. I love you. He saw me plunged in deep distress. He flew to my relief. For me, he bore the shameful cross and carried all my grief. That's more than words. That's actions. That's truth. He loved us with actions and truth costly actions 
And the flesh complains about that cost. You know, I have things that I, I, I need to buy with that money. And I already had that extra time assigned for something that I wanted to do in my schedule. Of course you do. And that's exactly what Christ-like love is willing to sacrifice for the greater joy of seeing your brother or sister enriched. There is nothing cheap about Jesus' love, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich, rich forever. How rich I am since Jesus came my way. Redeem my soul. Change my night to day. And now he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. A love like mine, a love willing to pay the cost and to keep paying the cost. And should you ever think that your love for your brother or sister is costing you too dearly? Well, you just need to bring your complaint to the service department of heaven. They have an office over in Jerusalem. It's right outside the city gates. It's on the knob of a hill called the Skull. And the man you'll want to talk to is on the center cross, dying between two thieves. His face is streaked with blood from a crown of thorns that's been beaten into his head by a staff. And his face is puffy and beyond human recognition where he was beaten and his beard plucked out. And he's hanging there on three nails, one through each hand and one through both feet. And when the weight of his body pulls him down, it nearly suffocates him. And when he can't go on without getting a breath, he has to push up on that nail through his feet to get up high enough to expand his chest and breathe. And as he pushes up, that back that has been bloodied by the cat of nine whips scrapes across that old rugged cross. And he heaves and gets another breath until the pain in his feet is so bad he can't take it anymore and he slumps down. And now he's hanging again on those nails through his hands and his chest is compressing and he can't take it. He has to push up again to get another breath. And so it goes for hours in the heat of the sun with the flies and with the crowd mocking and scorning and laughing at him. And the worst of it has not even started yet. No, it wasn't until noon, three hours in, when the sky suddenly grew dark and the father hid his face from him and he's all alone and forsaken. And during that darkness, that three hours of darkness, the Father poured his almighty, infinite wrath, concentrated into those three hours upon his Son. We never hear him scream because of the physical pain. But whatever that wrath of God did to his soul caused him to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so if somehow between his cry of dereliction and his giving up his spirit to his father, you could take your complaint to him and and tell him how it's costing you too much to go on loving your brother or sister. He'll hear you. 
But at this scene, we forget why we came. And we just say, oh, Lord Jesus, teach me to love like you have loved me. John was there that day. He stood at the foot of the cross. He saw it. And he couldn't think of it without also hearing what he had just said a few hours earlier in the upper room. Men, I'm leaving you. And I'm leaving you with a new commandment that you love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. And so Paul or or John can talk about this is what love is. Jesus Christ laying down his life. But he right away says, "And, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. You see, the cross forever defined love for John. And he is a man possessed now. He's a man compelled, like the Apostle Paul, by the love of Christ to now love his brethren and to stir them up. And that's why to his very last day he was saying, my little children, love one another. Because if you've done that, you've done all. John does the same thing in chapter 4 and verses 9 through 11, the next chapter. This is how God showed his love for us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation to pacify the wrath of God by taking it for ourselves. So, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Do you see? It's the echo. He can't tell us about how Jesus loved us without saying, no, no, since since he loved us that way, we need to love one another. The cost can be great, and that's why we pray, Jesus, keep me near the cross, near the cross. Well, his love for us was undeserved. It was costly, and lastly, and very briefly, it was unending. It was unending. It was infinite. It was eternal. It was unchangeable. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love, or he now loved them to the end. And we know what's coming in these last 12 hours and all the offenses of his disciples against him. And none of that will cool his love. He will just go on loving them right to the cross. And he'll stay on that cross And what's holding him there is not so much the nails as it is his love. And he will be held by love until he can say, it is finished. I love you so much, I'm paying the full price. The transaction's done. You're forgiven all your sins. It is finished. It was love to the end. And as I have loved you, so you must love one another with an unending love. That's the only kind of divine love there is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love never fails. It just keeps going on and on. It endures all things. It's never extinguished. It always perseveres. And that's the hallmark of Christ's love for his own. Nothing can separate us from this love. It's a love that will not let you go, and that's the distinctive mark of Christians' love to each other. It's to never end. Uh, in the Greek, it's a present tense in Jesus' word that, where he says, as I have loved you, so you must keep on loving 
one another. A present, continuous tense to show that our love for each other isn't just shown in a one-time action. His really came to flower in one action on the cross. He doesn't use the present continuous there. But he does when he says, now, now you keep on loving one another. It's no easy, to, it's no easy thing to, to keep on loving, is it? When, when that love is not being repaid. Proverbs 20, verse 6, Many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find? Who can find? Well, where are we going to get such love? That's the question. Where are we going to find love that is undeserved? And the more you pile of wrong to me, the more I love you back. Where am I going to get that? Where am I going to get love that's willing to, to pay the price of laying down my life? For you. And where am I going to get this love that never dies? It just keeps going on and on. The buckets of water to extinguish my love just keep coming on, but the, the flame keeps burning hotter and hotter. Where am I going to get that love? Well, it's clear, isn't it? It's not from me. I'm going to have to get it from him. I'm going to have to get it from the vine. I'm going to have to get it as a, as a dry, old, empty branch and... and, and by union and communion with Christ, receive such love through this fruitful vine that I might love you as he loves me. It's his love in us, and we'll look more at that next week. That's the only way that we can love this way. So let's pray, and let's plan to love as Jesus loved. This week, who will be on the receiving end of that kind of love in your life? Give some thought to it. Jesus did. And he came and he fulfilled that plan. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I'm going to challenge you this morning to surrender to this love. To believe that there is such a love in the universe. That the God of the universe, the God who made you, and saw you turn your back on him and go your own way and thumb him, he came in the person of his son. So great is love. And he now offers you that love. Will you receive it by faith? Will you come and take it? Will you say, yes, Lord, I, I, I believe? Because there's no safer place for your life to be than in the hands of somebody that loves you, that loves you like this. You, you want to go your own Go it, go it on your own. Go on. What are you going to find? You're going to find a world that's hating and being hated. You're going to find the darkness in your own heart, unable to love and to receive love. But you come to Jesus, and you find in him this perfect love. And you begin to find out what you were made for, to love him and to love your neighbor, and to love one another, even as Jesus has loved you. Let's pray. Teach us, Lord Jesus, to love each other like you have loved us. And when we find ourselves cooling and cold in our love toward each other, lead us to Calvary. And teach us again and warm our hearts again at your love for us. That that love might so uh, take grip in, in our hearts that we would then be able to love as we ought. Hear us. Answer us. Show us your mighty power. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.